Hola, mi gente. My name is Jessica Yanez, and I want you to join me for some wine and chisme. The Wine and Chisme podcast was created to amplify voices across communities of color, all while drinking a glass of wine. From wine talk, interviews, and recaps of all things pop culture, join me every Wednesday for the chisme. Please make sure to check out the Wine and Chisme podcast and other amazing podcasts as part of the Latina Podcasters Network. Did you know that you can experience many of the wines I taste here on the Wine and Cheese My Podcast? I'm sure you're aware of how important it is to me to highlight wine brands that are owned by those in the Latinx community. That is why the last Wednesday of each month, we host a virtual wine tasting featuring Latinx-owned wine brands. Whether you choose to partake in the tasting or just want to learn something about these vintners, If you enjoy wine, you will love these virtual events. Please visit thewineandcheesemetpodcast.com slash events for more information. Let's support our community and support these small vintners. Hola, hola, mi gente. I'm Jessica Yanez, and this is the Wine and Cheesemet Podcast podcast created to amplify voices and share the stories of people from BIPOC communities doing remarkable things, all while sipping on a glass of wine. So welcome to your new Wednesday. The Wine and Chisme Wednesday. Taylor, I'm so happy. Like literally, like I was telling you right before, I have been waiting for almost a year for us to have this conversation. <laughs> I am so glad that things went very well <laughs> because if they didn't, now I'm nervous. If they didn't go well. If they didn't, I'm like, um, I'm not having you on the podcast. <laughs> yeah, like, no, thanks. Sorry. <laughs> Thank you, Nick. So I'm going to pull an Ariana Grande. <laughs> but let me tell people who you are. Because if you don't know, you need to know who this woman is. This is Taylor Tiemann, Esquire. She's an attorney and founder of Legal Miga Membership, an accessible legal services membership created specifically for small business owners and entrepreneurs, which is so helpful because I think so many of us think it's outside of our realm to be able to hire an attorney for our legal services. She assists and advises her clients on how to legally protect their brand, services, products, and content through the effective use of preventative measures and legal strategy. Taylor operates a virtual law firm based out of Los Angeles and specializes in trademarks, contracts, copyrights, podcasts, and business formation. She takes immense pride in representing BIPOC and female-owned businesses to help them build and thrive. Yay, look at that. I love that. You've helped me, and we'll get into that later. But before we get into the chisme... Taylor's not drinking with me today because she says she has to work out. And I guess That's I understand that because she's getting married and I'm supposed to be like extra, you know, you're doing the extra stuff before you get married. I have to. <laughs> Literally, I would be right there with you. You know, I am drinking wine. Duh. Like this would not be the one that you said if I wasn't. So today I am drinking a 2019 Chardonnay. It's by Aldina Vineyards. Aldina Vineyards is one of our Latinx owned wine brands. This says the 2019 Aldina Chardonnay engages the taste buds with a bright, zesty lemon and honeysuckle notes. 
finishing with a vibrant acidity while enhancing the mineral layers and roundness of the barrel aging. This is interesting that it's barrel age because normally you find that with the steel age Chardonnay. Normally barrel age Chardonnays are kind of buttery and a little bit heavier. So I've not tasted this. I've actually been waiting to taste this and I haven't tasted it yet. So let me smell it first. I know nothing about wine, but that sounds amazing. <laughs> when you talk about wine, I feel like that's what people feel like when I talk about beer. Oh, really? probably. Yeah, like I can do that with beer. See, I'm not a big beer person. I like beer. How I will drink beer is if I have a michelada. And then I'm like, yeah, I'm all about it. (laughs) I'm really trying to get into wine. I just feel like it's so overwhelming. Yeah, but that's the whole point, right? I got you. I got you. That, but (laughs) but I think there's so many of us that don't necessarily grow up with wine. Yeah, right. And it feels so like just like fancy. Yes, I feel very intimidated ordering it everywhere (laughs) because then you got a swirl, right? (laughs) Okay, so there's so you do not have to. It's crazy. So I'm smelling it right now and I haven't swirled it, right? So I do smell the acidity. I do smell the lemon. But then when you swirl it, it opens it up because you're getting oxygen in there. See, now you're going to, I'm going to teach you something. So you know why you do that, right? So you swirl it and you're getting oxygen into the glass and then you smell it again and you'll actually, it opens up the aromas. So now I can actually smell other things. Like I smell grassiness and... There's something else that I smell that I can't pinpoint. I don't know, but now I'm going to taste it. Oh, this is good. I love when a Chardonnay is not buttery. I'm not a buttery, like when Chardonnays are really buttery and heavy, I'm just not a fan of that. The wine I drink, if I do wine, it's dry something. I like dry, not sweet. Yes. So there's, there's like sweet, semi-sweet. There's like all the different kinds that go on with that. But usually whites are not considered dry. They're usually semi-sweet. I guess mm-hmm. some probably could be dry. And you usually get those dry wines with more red wines because it has the tannins, which is comes from the skin. Mm-hmm. So if you were just to eat the skin of a grape, right? Of a red grape, it dries out your mouth. Oh, yeah. So that's where you know how much tan, like if it's a really heavy tannic wine, it's because they let it ferment longer with the skin. Oh, I just learned something. I know. And the skin was thicker. So like Pinot Noir grapes are the skin Mm -hmm. is a lot thinner than Mm -hmm. Cabernet grapes, Cabernet Sauvignon grapes. So I hope everybody learned something today. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome to my talk. (laughs) Educating the masses. But that's the point, right? I mean, I'm learning and I'm learning because I want to be able to share with my community who I didn't grow up with wine. So many of us didn't grow up with wine. And it feels very, like you said earlier, it feels really intimidating. Yeah. So I want to help take that off right that's a great thing and that pointing that out going to networking events is somewhere where i would order wine and then i would have no idea what i'm ordering and then it would feel very uncomfortable so if you want to order red wine but you don't want to order something heavy always go for like a Beaujolais or a pinot noir those are the lightest red wines and then you're going to get the obviously like a cab is going to be a lot heavier especially california cabs they're very robust and bold and very, mm-hmm. you know, the alcohol level usually tends to be more um, with Cabernets as well. So if you're going to an event and you know you're going to have a couple glasses of wine you haven't eaten, stick with a Pinot or Beaujolais. <laughs> <laughs> it's not going to have as much effect on you. <laughs> okay, good. 
<laughs> so let's get into the cheese, my Taylor. I'm so excited. I'm like, you see me, I'm just smiling because I'm so happy. You've helped me so much. You've helped so many people so much. But before we get into all of that, like, tell me about you growing up and your, were you like a really driven child growing up? Was it something that I think you probably have to be to end up being an attorney, right? But what was kind of your childhood like? And what would you say you kind of how what kind of child you thought you were versus what you think other people thought you were? Oh my gosh, that's a great question. That's like first time I've been asked a question like that. I think you could probably say I was a pretty driven child, not academically necessarily, but I played softball all the way up until college. And I got recruited to play softball. So I was playing every weekend on travel ball teams. So in that sense, you go to college, UPenn and Philly. My mom's goal was to get me into a very good school with softball. And that luckily happened. So yeah, I guess I was very driven with respect to sports, school. Like I was one of those people that didn't have like the most amazing grades, but in classes that I liked, I did pretty well. And then as I kind of went through college, that's when I started taking things a little bit more seriously because I was figuring out things I like to study and you get to start picking what you want to take courses in. So then I started to put a little bit more work into it, knew I wanted to go to law school. And I guess from that point, I just used my discipline skills I learned in softball and just kind of went straight shift into like, let's apply this in academics and just go full 100% with it. And I guess that got me through law school. (laughs) You were talking about softball. I think you had talked about it in on the Instagram one time and I was like, you were a pitcher, weren't you? I already knew. I already knew because I was a catcher. <laughs> and when you said that, that made so much sense. <laughs> oh, that I'm a cat that I was a catcher. Yep. <laughs> why mm-hmm. is that why did that make so much sense? Usually catchers are not like loud, but you guys are very like open, like immediate. Like there's not you don't have like lots of walls up. All of my catcher friends are very friendly. Yeah, you have like when you're playing softball and you're a catcher, you're the one who sees everything. So you're the one who's kind of directing the field, obviously Mm -hmm. not in play, but like, you know, where the batter is going to hit, what their weaknesses are, where they tend Mm -hmm. to drive, like all of those things. So you're like directing the field from, from behind the plate. And you're very good at usually like being able to communicate to everybody because you're talking to like eight girls on a field. So you have to know how to communicate with people very early whenever you start playing, which I think is a super awesome life skill to learn from softball. This is the first time I've even thought about that in that way. That's the first time I even thought about (laughs) (laughs) it. I'm like, oh, wow. Softball taught us some cool stuff. (laughs) It did. It did. You know, it's so funny when you're saying that because I was actually interested in being a lawyer when I was little and because I like to argue and everybody's like, you should be a lawyer. And but I didn't know what litigation was or anything. And I was like, yeah, I want to be a lawyer. But obviously that didn't stick very long. (laughs) What did you dream of being growing up? Because I don't think you necessarily you're like in in elementary school thinking you want to be an attorney. What did you what was your childhood dream? I think it was a combination of like, I got a lot of those, you're good at arguing comments. And also I kind of saw what life, I was very, paid a lot of attention to like how much things cost and like do activities and like, how do you take care of yourself? I guess like a general sense of independence. How do I get that quickly? My mom told me and I was like 10, I asked like, what jobs make the most money? Cause I'm just trying to immediately pay for everything for myself. 
And she was like, doctors and lawyers make a lot of money. Like every typical Mexican mom is like, go be a doctor, go be a lawyer. That also happens to me. But I think a lot of people are usually tell kids like, you're great at arguing, go be a lawyer. I think without knowing exactly what lawyers do, jumping into that and listening to people around you, I was like, oh yeah, I'm good at arguing. I should go to law school, which is like 5% of what you do. Luckily, the other skills, I was pretty good at writing, persuasive writing, but I'm glad that those like came after and I honed them in college and was able to work on them in law school. But yeah, I was that kid that was like, I wasn't a bad kid, but I was, I think I was pretty persuasive. And my mom was like, yep, we should probably go to law school. By we, I mean, her and I worked very hard to get into college. She was super supportive. So it was like a team effort. Oh my gosh. I get that because... We moved to Albuquerque a couple weeks before my junior year of high school. I was so unhappy. I was like ditching all the time. And I had to go to night school so I could finish classes because I would I would miss so many classes that I had to go to night school or else that I wasn't going to be able to pass. And on my graduation cake, it said, congratulations, we did it. <laughs> yeah, they were supportive. Yeah, it's totally, it's a family effort sometimes, right? With With all of those things, which is... I think a lot of times you find that within Latino families and everything. You graduated, you got to go to Penn, which is, I think people don't realize that's an Ivy League school. Like Penn is an Ivy League school. I think most people think of Harvard and Yale and Stanford and those types of schools, but they forget Penn isn't technically an Ivy League school. When you got a softball scholarship, which is, first of all, badass, Taylor, that is so badass that you got a softball scholarship to Penn. (laughs) I'm also very tall. That should probably be disclosed. I'm like a big girl. So they were looking for big girls. <laughs> and I just happened to be pretty tall pitcher. <laughs> but you have to be good too. You can't just be tall. They're not just looking just for a tall person. You actually have to be good. So please do. Sometimes. I'm not going to let you da- downplay getting a freaking scholarship to Penn. Sometimes I felt like that when the coaches were out watching playing us. I would be like, my like cattle right now. I feel like they start looking at you because you're really big. And then they're like, eh, okay, the bigger, bigger name schools would look for a couple of seconds and they're like, nah. But the other ones are like, oh, that's a big girl. <laughs> She's tall. She's not a big girl. Like, I mean, big and like tall. I embrace the word big. I had a very huge problem with the word big, like my whole life. Now I'm just like, I'm all about this word. Tell me about that. Cause I get that. T- I mean, I am short, right? I'm only like five, four, but I've never been somebody who's been super thin. And even if I'm on my journey right now again, but I still hate that word because I don't feel like that. And I feel like when people say it to me that it's not in a good way. So tell me like your journey of being able to embrace that still working on it but I think being an athlete I was also never small I think the smallest size I've ever been was a is a 10 not a 10 now more than that but um I think being of a certain stature not like your typical like tiny petite that's a lot to deal with but then you're also like I'm working so hard being an athlete this body gives me the ability to do that Like I have to just embrace it at some point. And then somewhere along the way, being able to see more things on social media, like girls that are in normal sizes has really helped. I don't like love the Kardashians, but I think they kind of started, okay, curvier is 
great. And then we moved into more representation for larger sizes and bigger girls. And I'm just like, okay, we're, we're working on it. But I think being able to see that helps a lot. When I was a teenager, none of that stuff was online. And I'm just like, wow, that would have been great if that was out there. So it's been a later in life process and acceptance, but it's also like this body lets me do cool stuff. I'm going to embrace it. Yes, I agree with that. I have this panza that just I look at and sometimes I burst in tears. I'm not going to lie. But then there's times where I look at my body and then I have to remind myself like my arms are strong. My legs are strong. This is why like my legs allow me to, to walk my dog miles. It allows me to do these things that, you know, and I think it's so many, so often we forget, right? We take our body for granted mm-hmm. of all the things that it allows us to do. And then sometimes people are born without certain things or they lose certain things mm-hmm. and then they have to relearn everything again. And we don't think about that. We just go day by day and not think of the amazing things that our body, our bodies allow us to do. So mm-hmm. I think we have to take more time to do that. Yeah. Two years ago, I was diagnosed with a hearing loss disorder and I had to go get a surgery for it. And that also, while it has nothing to do with my weight, it really triggered me like, wow, if I lose my hearing, that's a huge deal. So I was like, why am I worried so much about like outer appearances if I'm healthy and I can hear? That's really important for me too. And I think that helps me be like, okay, stop freaking out about like a little role. Yeah. <laughs> it's not a big deal compared to your hearing or like core you know, senses you have. Oh my gosh, that's so true. But let's get back to Penn, your time at Penn. <laughs> What was your experience like being, I don't know, I know one other person, another friend who went to Penn, and she's Latina, she's Puerto Rican. Mm-hmm. And she was actually from the island and, and moved to Pennsylvania to go to, to attend Penn. What is the diversity like? How did you feel going to Penn? Did you feel like you were kind of the only person? You're also light-skinned Latina, so did you feel like you were just able to blend in? How did you represent your Latinidad when you were at Penn? I feel like it was pretty easy for me to blend in. I didn't get like weird treatment or people treating me a different way. But I think I was really lucky to have a team full of girls that I think were pretty, my core group was pretty diverse. Like my roommate and catcher was Filipina. And then my, one of my other friends was half Asian, half white. So I felt and maybe coming from California, I like surrounded myself with these people that looked like everyone around me. So I don't recall a lot of like feeling like outsider, but I know that has a ton to do with how I appear and how I present. But looking back, when you come back to California, you're like, wow, like where were all of the non-white people? When I go back to homecoming events, when they have specific groups I go hang out in like their the little tents and their events and I'm like why is there nobody here in this there's like five people so I think I was like in a bubble kind of isolated with the rest of the school but had I just gone into school and been like I gotta pick friends now I think it would have been really difficult for me so I was very lucky to like plot myself into a team of girls who were half from California half are from like Florida which are pretty diverse places um, but Philly and Pennsylvania itself is not super diverse. So like there was no Mexican food. 
like there was two places. My mom shipped me salsa from home. Every time she came, I asked her to bring me food. So that was one of the really hard things. It's like, I didn't, there was no food to make me feel like, okay, I feel better. It was just like eating dining hall, regular stuff. It's like, oh. And I wasn't a very good cook then. So I couldn't cook myself food. <laughs> Living in Texas for so long, I am not a big Tex-Mex fan. So when people would ask me, oh, where's the best Mexican food? I'd be like, at my house. (laughs) (laughs) I make it. (laughs) When I make it. Because I grew up here. I grew up in San Diego. And there was definitely some places that were were definitely more authentic. But Tex-Mex and Cali-Mex really is what we have. And authentic Mexican food is very, very different than Tex-Mex. They freaking slather crema on everything. Or not even Mm -hmm. crema. A lot of times it's sour cream. I didn't know what queso was. The Texas version of queso, like the melted cheese. Oh, yeah, yeah. When people were like, oh, let's order some queso. Now, let me preface this by saying queso is addictive. It is amazing. <laughs> it is so freaking good, right? Because here in California, we would just call that like nacho cheese. Like, mm-hmm. you know, oh, we're going to make some nacho cheese for nachos or whatever. You don't call it queso. Because if you go to a Mexican restaurant, and this still holds true, if you go to a real Mexican restaurant here in California and you ask for queso, they're going to bring you a side of shredded cheese. (laughs) (laughs) They're not going to bring you what you think queso is. And I had no idea. And I just was so confused. But then I tasted it and I was like, give me all the queso. (laughs) (laughs) Hence my problem. Hence the challenge. (laughs) It's good. There's some stuff I'm like, I can't give this up. (laughs) Right? I'm telling you. You still have to live your life. Cheese is really hard, but I've been trying to give up dairy, but the, I don't know if it's like the crema sauce or something. It's vegan or cheesy or something at Tokaya Organica. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's Tokaya here, too. Oh, my gosh. That's amazing. I have not been to Tokaya, and I need to go. Their vegan quesadilla is really good. I don't know that it's any healthier than regular cheese, but... (laughs) It's really good. I guess depends, right? Where did you end up going to law school? Did you stay at Penn for law school? Did you go somewhere else? I went to Southwestern here in Los Angeles, just downtown LA. They're literally about five minutes from downtown. You can see the skyline. Beautiful school. I came back here mostly because I wanted to do entertainment transactional work, but also because my family was back here. And I moved back home, lived with my parents all through law school. And... I applied to a bunch of different schools, but ultimately that was the one that was, I thought was going to help me get into the type of job that I wanted. What would you say, but prior to moving back to California, moving back home, your biggest challenge and your biggest reward was from being in Pennsylvania besides the Mexican food. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I think it really like being alone and away from your family and away like I essentially left all my friends here and just went across the country like hoping I would make friends. Um, so that to me, I don't know that I was thinking it was very scary at the time. I was just really excited to go play softball. But then as you are there, you're like, wow, my family is really far away. If something happens to them, I have to hop on a plane for five hours. So I think it really helps me develop a lot more independence and being able to like figure out a lot of stuff for myself that I maybe wouldn't have figured out here. And I think I was able to really like with my family and like my dad's white, my mom's Mexican, our family operates very much like a 
typical Latinx family. Like everybody's in each other's business. Your personality starts to like morph with everybody else's. So I think being separated from that allowed me to just grow up for four years and become who I needed to be, which I'm super grateful for. But yeah, now I'm back home closer to them. But I think it really allowed me to just develop as a person. But it was also really hard being far from them. Yeah, I totally get that. I did that for a long time. I think everybody has to be able to get away from their family for a little bit too, especially when you're within the Latino community and maybe all, I mean, I'm not black or Asian, so I can't say from all those communities, I can just say for our community, right? So much of our personality ends up being developed because of the closeness that so many of us have with our families and everybody's chismoso and everybody wants to know everybody's things. And I think it's such a good thing like my nephew is going into his senior year of high school and going to college and I'm asking him where he wants to go to college. And he said, I'm University of Arizona. And I started laughing. I'm like, I know why you want to go there. <laughs> Get away. That's a party school. <laughs> I'm like, I, I know why. But I do think that it would be good for him to not be. And then, and he's also thinking of California. And if it's California, he'd probably stay with my parents. Mm-hmm. Which that would be, I'm like, you. do you really want to do that? I mean, I love my nephews. I will mm-hmm freaking die for my nephews. But I think it's important that they, you know, also learn to live their own lives and then decide where they want to go. Do they want to go back home after that? Is there somewhere else? But to learn that independence, I agree. I think that's so, so important. Wine break. Time to refill that glass and come back for more Wine and Chisme. Hola, mi gente. If you haven't heard, I am here to share with you the Wine and Cheese podcast has launched the very first Latine-owned wine brand directory ever. Just go to the wineandcheesemipodcast.com, then go to Wine Brand Directory. There you will be greeted by me. But more importantly, you will be able to choose a winery first by region, then by county. And the wineries in that area will not only be listed, but you can connect directly to them from this site. It couldn't be easier than that, right? Use this directory to plan your own wine adventure or learn about some of these Latine vintners or share it with a friend and have them buy some Latine wine as well. Something like this has ever been available. So go use it and support our community. When did you decide, because you said you wanted to work in entertainment law at what point did you realize that that's not what you wanted to do and you wanted to go more into this business type of law for business owners and entrepreneurs i wanted to do entertainment going into law school all throughout law school entertainment operates somewhat similar to business not 100 there's a lot of overlap though um, but quite honestly, I just like could not for the life of me get a job in entertainment. I got internships, I clerked some places, but you really have to know people. And not, nobody in my family is an attorney. Nobody works in the legal field. So that can help sometimes. As much as I networked, I didn't have a lot of people like, hey, we have a job here. Like I'll slide your resume through. I was like really clawing my way into getting into these places. And I just, for the life of me, could not get a job somewhere. I don't know. I don't, I really don't interview well. So that could probably be it. <laughs> but I ended up working just in civil litigation, which is your standard, like personal injury type cases, real estate, some business litigation. But I ended up working in civil lit for three and a half 
years after law school. And I just like never gave up wanting to go back to doing the transactional work. It would have been cool to be back in entertainment, but I really just wanted to be doing like intellectual property type work and contract drafting. I didn't want to be in like the people fighting and suing each other anymore because that takes a whole other level of energy to deal with that. I really just wanted to be helping structure deals and structure businesses and help with IP. So I finally was like, I really want to do this. How do I figure this out? I ended up finding some attorneys on Instagram that do things similar to what I do now. I reached out to them. I just was asking them a bunch of questions. I saw that there was a path there. And then right around the same time, a friend of mine was opening up a Pilates studio and she asked me for help. So helped her with that. And I just was like, I feel like I can do this. I feel like other people, I see them doing it. I'm going to try. Let's go for it. And that's how I opened my firm. So you never actually were, I mean, besides clerking or interning, you never worked for a firm straight from, you went like straight from law school, passing your bar. I worked in civil litigation law firms for like three, three and a half years. So I was in litigation. My last firm, I was actually suing, this is ironic, suing businesses for violations of laws when they contact their clients and customers. So now I do 180, the opposite, protecting the business owners. But at my prior firms, we were suing like big banks, big companies, going after larger people. And I was like, there's plenty of attorneys that work for these companies. Like who do these smaller businesses talk to? Like how do they find their help? This is a lot. So there was a kind of a lot of factors that went into it that all kind of culminated at the same time. And I think it was just like a sign, just do it. I mean, it's needed, especially for small businesses that don't know like where to go or what to do. That's so crazy. First of all, like, was that a scary move to you're like, okay, I'm quitting my law firm and starting it because you can't do both, right? Can you do both at the same time? You have to just do one or the other. Some firms let you. My contract didn't explicitly say anything. So I was like, kind of taking on clients, but also realizing like, I can't do both of these things at the same time. And my firm, that area of the law that we were kind of attacking was not dwindling, but the the judges and arbitrators were favoring the other side a lot. So I was like, I don't know if this niche area is going anywhere. This, I feel like this is like not going to be exciting for much longer. So I had to make a decision. Like, do I just start my own thing. We'll see what happens. But yeah, it's totally terrifying. Like I got insurance the first day that I started just because I was really scared. How do you prepare for something like that? Because I think this is a question, to be perfectly honest, that I've failed to ask other entrepreneurs because you're an attorney, but you're also an entrepreneur. This is your, your own firm. Do you go in there with okay, I need to have this much saved. I need to have, because as an attorney, I know, like, I feel like other people legally would want to know, but also just from, they think, oh, well, she's an attorney. She probably had all this done. She probably had all this done. But how do you go, like, be honest, girl. Like, did you, like, were you prepared for the fallout should something not pick up? Knowing how much I spent on my business did not have enough saved that if, like, I had no clients my first year, I would have been like out of luck. I don't, I've never created a business plan before. I've never started a business. So I knew the legal part, but I had no idea how much things were going to cost. 
I still don't even have a business plan. It's just figuring out things as you go. So I had maybe like, if necessary, like 20K in the bank to fall back on, but that's like nothing here in California to pay rent. I think I had enough to like pay rent for a year and that's it. I mean, that's a lot more than a lot of people have too. What are some of the common misconceptions? Because you talk to people all day. And first of all, you are so generous with your time and with the information that you share on Instagram, on Facebook, doing free webinars, all of these things. So what are some of the common misconceptions that people have? Because you are very specific in regards to what you're doing. You're doing um, trademarks, contracts, copyright, podcast stuff, and business formation. Mm-hmm. What are some of the common misconceptions that people come to you with in regards to those things and how they should approach it? Generally, the misconception is I don't need legal protections until something bad happens. And it's actually not to be morbid, but you really have to think of it more like a, if you die, do you have proper paperwork to disperse your family heirlooms, your whatever's in the bank account? Do you have everything in writing that you need before that happens? Because if you have nothing in writing and you die, the state's going to figure that out for you. And it could get very messy. So same thing with business ownership, same thing with intellectual property ownership. Yeah, you don't have to have something in writing all the time. But if you don't have what you need in place, then it's going to be much more expensive to solve the issues after. So I think there's a... And I think this just goes along generally with business ownership. And I had no idea how to run a business. Some of the stuff you need to invest in early. Um, But having at least a framework or an, an understanding of what you need ahead of time and then make the call on, do I want to pay for this now? Do I want to pay for this later? But at least getting the education first, understanding what you do and don't need, and then making the call of, do I want to be an LLC yet? Do I want to file trademark applications yet? Do I want to get these contracts in place yet? Usually we want to have all those things taken care of. Budget-wise, we can't have everything all the time. Truth. (laughs) I get that. And then what are some of the common mistakes that people like end up doing and then they come to you and they're like, well, crap, Taylor, I did this and I'm a dummy and now I need your help. What are some of those common things that they come to you with? I don't want to say like all trademark applications. Some people apply and they get theirs through and it's fine. It's really like a hit or miss situation where if you fill it out properly and there's no other issues trademark office has, like you'll get it through. I don't have to see it, but if there's a problem along the way, that's usually where they come back and they're like, I filed and they refused it. And I don't know why, can you help me? That's one. And then any sort of business dispute, I see a lot of like partnerships or collaborations going awry where there was not an either an understanding ahead of time or somebody just like got crazy and was like, I'm going to start taking money or I'm going to walk away and take all of whatever we just created. And then it's really hard to backtrack at that point. So I think partnering up with other people, while it can be a great tool and a great resource, and sometimes even double, triple your income immediately because you're working with somebody else to get great ideas. I think establishing who's doing what, who owns what, what money is coming down, what pipelines, figuring that out early. 
What is the difference between an MOU? So if you don't know what an MOU is, it's a memorandum of understanding and a contract. MOU usually, depending on what's in it, may or may not be binding. Uh, There's some MOUs that some language will be binding, some language won't. So what I mean by binding is that you can take it to court and have a judge be like, this is final. This is, you're bound to this part of the MOU. So it's better if to have a contract if you're working with somebody versus an MOU. If sometimes an MOU, I see them when we're like doing preliminary type, like back and forth, where we haven't quite solidified exactly what we want yet. Um, so sometimes they're helpful in that sense, because then we can just incorporate them later into a final agreement. So I usually see them used like pre-negotiating. Um, but they, I mean, an MOU, just because it's called that, it may actually be binding depending on what's in it. So that's why it's always important to have an attorney look at it to make sure what's what's binding or not. So let's talk about trademarks. because. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so just so you guys are aware and we're very transparent, Taylor's my trademark attorney. <laughs> and I think there's a lot of confusion between trademark and copyright and intellectual property. Can you help clarify the difference between trademark, copyright, and intellectual property? Mm-hmm. Intellectual property is like a broader definition for the different types of property that you can come up with intellectually. So like your creative works, there's four types of intellectual property. There's trademark, copyright, patents, and trade secrets. So intellectual property in general is just the ability to be able to own something you've created. And then we just break that down into different categories. So a trademark is by definition, the name or a logo or a slogan or some sort of marker of how your client or customer recognizes your brand. So example, McDonald's name, logo, slogan, we know all three of those. Those are their trademarks. Copyright is by definition, any unique creation in a tangible medium of expression. So broken down, all that means is anything that you've created that it's usually more like a content based or a piece of art or a photograph. It may not be immediately recognizable as your brand, but it's still something that you've created. So you can still protect it under copyright law. Got it. One of the things I think you've helped with and helped clarify is if you have even the intention or if you've applied for your trademark, the difference between using the TM and the R when you're intending or applying for your trademark. Can you explain that? The TM can be used anytime the symbol is basically to show everyone else that you're claiming rights to your name. So it means like, hey, people, this is my name. This is my logo. I'm claiming rights to it. And this is what I'm putting on the name. You could have applied for it with the trademark office to register it. You may not have. You don't have to, to use that symbol. It's just like a, hey, I would like to save this. The R with the circle around it, on the other hand, is the symbol that you can use only when you're registered with the trademark office. So if they have officially recognized you, you can use that registered symbol because you are registered. Guess what, guys? I'm registered. (laughs) (laughs) So let me share why I ended up 
using Taylor because obviously everybody knows the name of the podcast called the Wine and Cheesement Podcast. I was having other people tell me, oh, you can just do it yourself. You can just do it yourself. And you can research up to a certain point of what, like I didn't see anything under my name. I didn't see anything like that. But I'm also not an attorney. And I also didn't want to deal with what if something came back? And then like how you were saying before, people registering, like submitting for the registration and then it comes back with something and then they don't know what to do. And to be perfectly honest, I didn't want to deal with that. I wasn't sure, especially for a podcast, how that worked, how that differentiated from anything else. I was like, I don't want to have to worry about that. And then to give the... I mean, for you, it's not anxiety, but to pass my anxiety off to somebody else Mm -hmm. where you're not having the anxiety and I'm not having the anxiety because I've passed it along was seriously one of the best investments I've ever made. Oh my gosh, because I did. I mean, sometimes I'd be like, have you heard anything? But literally that was it. But you did set the expectation. And I think that's also something that people don't realize the length of how long it takes But you were very clear on what that expectation was. So when things were happening or what things weren't happening, (laughs) I wasn't freaking out because you had already set that expectation. Had I done it myself, I would have probably been going on there like every single day for 10 months trying Mm -hmm. to find out what was happening. And the crazy part was during your process, even the trademark office started taking much longer to respond So like all of us trademark attorneys knew, and if something was taking longer and we had gotten that update, we tell our clients, but if you file on your own, you're just like, what is happening? Why are they taking so long? Am I getting rejected? So it's, it's nice to be able to communicate that too. Oh my gosh. I would have driven myself crazy had I look, yeah, I'm in my forties. So yeah, I'm, I'm like really an adult, but I was like, (laughs) oh my gosh, I hired a trademark attorney. I'm like really an adult now. (laughs) I do this. I have an ethics attorney and I do the same thing. I'm like, my ethics attorney said this and she said this. (laughs) I do the same thing. Yes. So question, when you're talking about, because you specialize also in podcasts, what within podcasts do you specialize in? Because I think people get really confused. Like, why do I need legal protection for a podcast? Why do I need this for a podcast? Can you, for other people who may be listening, explain why you would need legal protection if you're launching or have a podcast? Podcasts are a great example of starting a business. Even if you don't think that you're starting a business with your podcast, you essentially are hitting all those same, checking all the same boxes as when you start a brand new business. You have to think of a name for the podcast. So there we have trademark considerations. You have potentially guests. So do we get those people to sign agreements? Yes, no. We have maybe advertisers, sponsors, marketing going on. So we need to maybe get that in writing. Is the podcast bringing in revenue? Do we want to separate it as a legal entity? How do we protect the episodes? Copyright protection, we can do that if we want to. So podcasts are a great example of like the main areas we hit for businesses. And I think a lot of people think it's a hobby. It's a lot more than we think as far as we got to check these boxes to make sure that we're doing things properly, not breaking any rules. Yes, it's a lot more than people think. Even legally. I know there's like 
a lot of work that goes into podcasts. That's part of the reason why I don't know if I would ever do it. There's so much work that you guys do. <laughs> Thankfully, I'm at a point where I have hired an editor. So shout out to Juan Pablo because he makes me sound good. He makes us <laughs> sound good. And then even for the website, having, you know, I have a friend helping me out with that. I've kind of gotten to the point where I can't do everything as much as Mm -hmm. I want to do everything I can't. And that was the hardest part is just letting go. So even letting go of the trademark process and having you do it, that was not so hard because I didn't want to. (laughs) But the editing part was hard as a one man band. And now I guess we're a trio now. What does that mean? Like, where do I, do I form an LLC? I'm technically just a DBA. Like, how does that work? It, you know, it, all of these things, which I know I ask you questions randomly on Instagram or, but I think, you know, all of these things that you have to think about, tell us, but you've kind of really helped compact and helped a lot of that with the Legal Mega library. Can you share what exactly that is? Because you've really put a lot of work into helping people feel at ease and have resources that they can go to when they have these types of questions. Yeah. So I have, separate from my law firm, I have an educational platform for business owners where we have essentially a library full of templates and courses. And I've been working on a podcast course. It just is taking a little longer. (laughs) But essentially resources for business owners to be able to First, learn about the legal stuff and then have templates to put in place. And then also with certain memberships over there, we have weekly or excuse me, monthly phone calls where the group calls, people can hop in and ask questions. So it's I think when I started my firm, I obviously had a goal of wanting to help people with their legal support, but then realizing there's so much education that wasn't there and I get it. I'm a brand new business owner. As of two years ago, there was, I didn't know anything about like accounting or marketing. So there's a lot of things we have to learn and at least be aware of before we can start implementing. Some business owners are at the point where they can hire an attorney directly. If they can't yet, library is great because you can have access to ask me questions. And then there's templates, courses and stuff. And if they have, if they're part of the legal MIGA library and they want to file for their trademark or file for copyright, you can help them with that as well, right? Like they don't have to strictly stay in the legal legal library. They can actually hire you for, for those services. Yeah. I have a couple of people that are in the library that are just like, I learned it. I figured it out, but I still would rather have you do it just because they want that peace of mind. Um, and some of them hop over to the firm and then we set them up and we help them there. Well, you know, I just went straight into being your client. <laughs> <laughs> but that's like part of being a business owner is figuring out like, who am I just going to hand off everything to? Like, I don't touch accounting. I have people to help with that. I tried to do it for six months and I just was like, this is too difficult. Yeah. I get way too frustrated with this. Some things, you know, you contract out, you ask for help, you get coached, you do it yourself. It's a lot to make decisions on as a business owner. I think a lot of times people get really scared of cost when they're hiring mm-hmm. an attorney. You didn't charge me per hour. You said, this is how much it was for the whole thing. Mm -hmm. And I was like, okay, let's just do the whole thing because I can't, I don't even want to skip anything. And what if something happens? Like for me, it was very much like I had to figure out where can I divert funds from to make sure this got paid, right? As a business Mm -hmm. owner, you have to figure out like what the most important things are. 
And I appreciated that because a lot of times people work per hour and then you're like, well, really, how much are you working for me per yeah. hour? Are you doing like a 15-minute call or is it like a five-minute call and you're charging me 15 minutes type of thing? Mm-hmm. I mean, I never worked at a law firm that operated that way. It's different. This is solo. I'm the one sending out the bills. I see what's coming in. In a firm, you're just getting a salary. I never wanted to do the hourly thing. Some, like maybe 5% of clients are a lot hourly for things like negotiating sometimes, but everything else is flat fee because I feel so much more comfortable being like, look, this is the price for this. This is what you're going to get. Because I know that hesitancy of like, are you really like, what are you doing for half an hour? You know, I've seen that with like accountants. I know I think that way too. So I want my clients to feel a hundred percent. Like she's doing what she's saying she's doing. I know the price ahead of time. Plus it's easier for me because taking the time to bill hourly takes like twice the time just to even do work. You're like, I could have just said what it was and it would have been so much better. What has been like over the last couple of years as you've had your firm and you've had the Legal Miga library, what has been the most challenging thing? And then what has been the most rewarding thing? The most challenging thing probably across the board is just not I mean, we have like mentors we can reach out to if you are able to make those connections. I have friends that have very similar type of law firms, but at the end of the day, like all this is on the line under my name. It's under my law license. I worked really hard for that thing. So it's all tied to you. And that falls under like your reputation. How do your clients view you? What do they think of you? Um, Is anybody gonna sue me? Is anybody have a problem with me? That's been the scariest part, but I'm not over it hundred percent, but you quickly forget about that and put it in the back of your brain when you help clients and they have like beautiful reactions to things that you've helped them with. And you're just like, oh my God, this is exactly why I'm doing this. And this is why I'm taking these risks. Taylor, can I tell you when I got, well, actually I had a couple of crying moments from you. The first one was when you sent me the first, uh, like saying like there was no other, like there was nothing in the way of it, of trademarking the name. And you said, it's going to take a few more weeks to be finalized everything, like, because it has to be published. And I think that's what people don't like, not only was it because of COVID, it probably took longer. Right. But then after they say, okay, well, we don't see anything wrong. It has to be published somewhere for 30 days. People get a chance if they want to, they can dispute it, like all of those things. But just when I got that very first email saying like, doesn't seem like there's anything wrong with it. We don't see anything else like this. I burst into tears because I was like, oh my gosh, this is really happening. But look, (laughs) I'm getting emotional. Look, my eyes are tearing up. And then when you sent the other one saying like, oh yeah, that was right before it got published or it's, they tell you the date it's going to be published. And then when you sent me the email saying it's been approved. My trademark is officially registered. I burst into tears again. (laughs) I took a screenshot and started like sending everywhere. I was like so excited (laughs) because I was just so happy because I, everything that happens for this podcast, and I'm working on saying I can't believe it because I've worked really hard, so I can believe it. I can believe it because Mm -hmm. I've worked really hard. But it's like every step that this happens, I'm just like even more mind blown and more mind blown. Like, oh my gosh, I'm working on this and this is really happening. Oh my gosh, Mm -hmm. I paid Taylor and this is really happening. Like, 
all of these things. And it hasn't been easy, right? Like by all means, but just every time there's a win, it's like exponential. If you're somebody who's thinking about whether you're trademarking or whether it's contracts or what, the sense, I don't think you understand the sense of not only relief, but excitement of whatever until it actually happens. Because I didn't realize I was going to have that visceral reaction. Yeah. When I, I mean, started. it's like a official formal, I think, cause we all think about legal, like this, like uptight, like formal thing. And then when it like hits you and you're like, I have this now, I think it's such a cool reaction. Like I do this all the time, but I formed my own LLC when I got the binder. I was like, Oh my gosh, it's real. Like I, but I do it all this, <laughs> but it's such a good feeling. Cause you're like, yeah. I'm investing a lot of time and money and my life into this and it's getting formalized and it's a good feeling. Such a good feeling. And then I'm like, okay, what's the next thing I need to do? What's the next (laughs) thing I need to do? I will get to all of those things (laughs) one step at a time. Yeah. I mean, if you're looking for somebody, reach out to Taylor. There was another question I wanted to ask and it just popped out of my head. But while I'm trying to remember that, Is there anything that I haven't asked? I want to make sure I give you the opportunity to share anything else that you would like to share because that's what we do. We want to make sure you get the opportunity to spill your cheese, my girl. I honestly love even because I can't share who has worked with me. I obviously can't give details about that. So like, it's more exciting when you tell your story because I finally am like, yes, see, we did it. I couldn't say it until they said it. I know. So that's I appreciate like, that. That's why I was waiting, right? That's why I was waiting to have you because I wanted you on like forever ago. I wanted, but I also wanted to be able to talk about my experience with you, my feelings and my journey and how it was just completely worth it to just hand that off so much more peace of mind and not knowing and knowing that I didn't have to deal with, thank goodness there weren't complications. Thank goodness mm-hmm. there weren't anything going on, but just knowing that if there were, I had somebody who had my back. You didn't even need me. You manifested the whole thing. <laughs> and there is more to come. What you talking about? <laughs> this is just the beginning, which is crazy. Like, I can't even believe how much has happened, right? How Everything that's going on. People can reach you at, at Legal Mega and at Legal Mega Library. Are those two separate Instagrams? Mm-hmm. One's for my firm and the other one's for the library, but I handle control both. And then what's um, your website? Uh, ttmanlaw.com. Taylor, I'm so happy you came on. Thank you so Thank much. You. I like, I appreciate you so much, not just for sharing your time and your story and answering questions, but just personally for just being so wonderful to work with and being so easy to work with and being so transparent to work with. It made like all of this stuff because we're um, I think it was in a month. It's a year that we filed that you filed. And I think what a month ago, I just I think it was because believe me, as soon as Taylor sent me an email, I went to my Instagram and changed it to the R for registered yes. trademark immediately. Yes, yes. as you should. <laughs> yes. So nobody can know. I got my name. Oh, I did have the other question I had before we close. Am I trademarked forever or do I have to renew at some point? Unfortunately, you're not trademarked forever. And I will be following up with you. So don't worry. <laughs> I actually have something in my inbox 
for you. It's drafted. But um, any trademark generally, five to six years after you're registered, you have to show them proof again that it's still being used. And then at the 10 year mark, and then every 10 years after. So it's not forever, but it's for a good amount of time. But you're just, you basically just have to show that you're still using it and everything. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's just so that they, like, if somebody's using a trademark that is no longer being used, so that if somebody else wants to hop on it, they can't. And then I guess another question, speaking of, how does that affect other people? So if they want, for example, we've spoken, and there is another podcast that is very similarly named, except the names are inverted to mine. How do you protect yourself from something like that without necessarily taking legal recourse? Or are you able to, or do you have to take legal recourse? You don't have to. And most times, honestly, we're able to get things sorted out through communicating with the other person, party, or business, because sometimes they have no idea what they're doing is wrong. Sometimes they know and they just don't care. But we like to have a conversation first. I usually like to tell clients like informally, maybe try and reach out, let them know what's up. Because usually they will back off and stop using it. If they dig their heels in, there is legal recourse we can take. We usually start off with cease and desist. And then if we need to take it further, um, we can start taking actual legal action. But most things get resolved with early communications. I I mean, I do this for all clients. Like I really don't have like to hop, like to have to hop in unless I have to, because then somebody sees lawyer, they freak out, they get defensive uh, in most cases. So I usually like to see if we can get it worked out. Plus also we're usually like, I represent small business owners. If they get that sort of communication, I appreciate it much more if their attorney has tried to work it out informally with them because they're panicking they're like, oh my gosh, what do I do? But yeah, there's steps you can take before legal recourse. So you don't need to take it all to the court real quick. <laughs> yeah, the courts will take forever right now anyway. Yes. Okay, Taylor, I remembered a question <laughs> that I wanted to ask. This is the, the BTS side yes. of the question. <laughs> I just recently saw a woman of color who created this whole financial system and whole like this whole financial course, and it was a free course. And then apparently somebody who took her course completely lifted her system. I looked at the what, like the websites look the same. The verbiage is exactly the same. For anybody that's done anything like this, whether it's a course or for me, I'll put myself in it. Like this, this directory that we created that is legit the very first Latine owned wine brand directory based in the U.S. ever. If somebody just decided to lift my directory, or somebody decided to lift like this course, is there recourse for something like that? Or do you have to copyright that in order to have any recourse? So first, we have to see if it's something that it's technically protectable. Sometimes with information, it gets a little sticky, like fact-based information. But if there's a lot of like unique parts that you've put into something, like a course, directory, a list, um, those combined with the info can sometimes be protected. But yes, this is where copyright registration becomes really important because in order to actually take it to like a court level, we need to have things registered. 
Um, there's ways that you can like report on certain sites that they've either violated terms of the site and try and get a yank down. If you don't have something registered, we can always try and like send scary letters and be like, look, we own X, Y, and Z. But if we don't have that like foundational protection, we're sometimes limited with what we can do. And I've had this happen with a client with a course. We have to go back and see what items could be protected, were they protected, and how can we move forward with those. And sometimes it's like, we don't have it protected. I could write a letter and send it like 45 times. But if they have an attorney on their side, know that knows full well, like we don't have things registered, they're going to be like, they're bluffing, you know. Um, there's also a lot of other factors that go into that, like attorney's fees. So when you start writing letters, fighting back and forth, some people don't want to pay those fees. The other side may not want to pay high fees if they get a letter. So that's a factor we take into consideration, even if we know our letter might not do well. If that person gets freaked out and doesn't want to have to pay an attorney, they might just be like, okay, never mind. I'll take it down or I'll remove it. A lot of little factors that go into it. But yeah, um, if there's things that you're creating and either selling or providing access to, making money off of, and you don't want it to be shared by other people, absolutely protect whatever portions of it that we can. Ooh, so much goes into all of that. So much you have to do to protect yourself. Lordy. What? <laughs> ha, let me hand my wallet over to you, Taylor. <laughs> I mean, like, I like to be transparent with people. Like, I have courses, I have guides, I have PDFs. Not everything's protected. I'm not going to tell people what is and not protected, but I don't have, I don't have the time or even funds to protect every single thing, but I make decisions on, does this thing make a lot of money? I should probably protect this. Does this item get frequently shared? And would I be very upset if another attorney took it? Maybe I'll protect this. There's like freebies, you know, people share those depending on what you're putting into something, but yeah. So basically you know, especially you have with to courses. figure out what what they feel is the most valuable that they should protect. Unfortunately, as smaller business owners with budgets that are not the size of like Walmart and Coca-Cola, yeah, we do have to make those decisions. If we have the funds to protect everything, like, yeah, go for it. But I don't even have the funds to protect everything. Thank you, Taylor, for answering that. Taylor, again, thank you so much. I appreciate you so, so much. And I'm going to finish this glass of wine, guys. So until next time, bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Wine and Cheese Med Podcast. For more information on today's guest, please see the show notes for links to websites and social media channels. You can check out all things Wine and Cheese Med on our website, thewineandcheesemedpodcast.com. There, you will find the names of wines I drink each episode, as well as additional information on me, the podcast, and you can even apply to be a guest straight from there. You can also find us on social media at The Wine and Cheese Mint on Instagram and at The Wine and Cheese Mint Podcast on Facebook. Remember, if you want to hear more Wine and Cheese Mint, please subscribe, rate, and review. Five-star ratings are appreciated and those positive reviews are appreciated even more.